Welcome to another episode of the Dhamma Search Leadership Podcast, where I speak with the most fascinating uh, C-suite leaders in biotech, medtech and pharmaceutical industries. And uh, as my LinkedIn network are, are sure aware, I've been pumping it for the last week. Uh, delighted to be joined today by Anthony Tennyson, who's co-founder and chief executive officer of Awaken Life Sciences, who are a revenue generating biotech company who are researching, developing and commercializing therapeutics uh, to treat addiction with a near term focus on alcohol use disorder as well. There's lots of other stuff going on. Um, For anybody who follows Awaken, you'll see new partnerships in the US. You'll see growth in the Nordics as well and and plans for Europe. Some really exciting uh, recent uh, tranche of funding as well. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Anthony. It's great great to have you. Thank you much. Uh, it's great, great to speak with you and, and to speak with uh, everyone who's dialing in to or joining the podcast. Yeah. Thank you. Amazing. So we, we I think we first spoke uh, late last year as well, 21, I was introduced to the business uh, and I got to work really closely with you and James on uh, a CMO uh, search uh, where Arun mm-hmm. has hopefully settled in nicely now um, with, with a lot of interesting skills. Yeah, he is indeed. He's been a great addition to the team. So very, very grateful for the process that you helped us run and, and were successful on. Um, yeah, and Arun, um, he brings a, a huge amount of value to the team, um, a, a sort of a, a new level of insight into what we do, having you know, very experienced in the addiction treatment industry in the UK. And now it's brilliant to bring his deep experience to bear to a new to a, to our new approach to treating addiction to help solve what is potentially or probably one of the biggest problems facing society today. Absolutely, and I think you know I'd I'd had some experience uh, or, or enough experience of like thinking with working with biotechs and and pharma, but it was the first time I'd really gone deep into the psychedelic industry, and and then the other la- the added layer of of uh, you know the great work that Awaken are doing with the psychotherapy as well it really it, it showed me how small the industry was but how huge it was at the same time you know how challenging it was to find you know f- the very few people who can really latch on to what you're doing and what you're looking to achieve and maybe this is a good time to to get your take or or, or your introduction on awaken and uh, you know wh- where it's all come from yeah, sure. Happy to. So, so like you said in your introduction, we're, we're a biotech. Um, we develop and we commercialize therapeutics to treat addiction. And we got a near-term focus on alcohol use disorder. Um, and alcohol use disorder, it's unfortunate, it's a condition that affects 300 million people globally. Um, and it has a, a very poor current standard of care. You know, our research suggests that there's about a, a, a 75% relapse rate within the first 12 months post-treatment. So that's a 25% success rate, 75% relapse rate. But actually, I was, I was talking to a guy who has 12 addiction treatment clinics in the US the other the other day. Um, and when I mentioned the 25% success rate, he shook his head. Wait, They have a single digit percentage success rate with treating alcohol use disorder. And so what we have in some of, some of the work that we have completed, including a phase two trial in the UK, we achieved an 86% abstinence rate in the six months post-treatment and so that is that is the power that psychedelics have in conjunction with psychotherapy to treat addiction in general and alcohol use disorder in particular so that's what we are is we we develop them and we also commercialize them or deliver them so we've got a a relatively deep r&d program 
couple of R&D programs. All of those are focused on using psychedelic drugs to make therapy more effective in the context of treating addiction. And that approach of using psychedelic drugs and therapy together, it's it's quite new. Um, And so we are also delivering those and commercializing those therapeutics today. And the reason we do that is so that we can understand the operating model, the delivery model and the commercial model and sort of help build the ecosystem for retooling the addiction treatment industry to enable them to deliver these therapeutics at scale in due course. So, so that's us at a very, very yeah, high level. Absolutely. And, and as we spoke before as well, this is, this is not a retreat where you can go away for a week and just have a quick, uh, quick catch up session um, with psychedelic medicine and have a, have a dabble. This is something you're looking to commercially roll out, like say with a label that's highly regulated. And you said the, the boring stuff, but it's so true, isn't it? Something that is, uh, favored by the the insurers and and such that you can scale and and help treat addiction without just dabbling in the industry yeah that look our, our purpose as a company is to democratize psychedelics um, and democratization means available through the public health care system and through the insurance through insurance reimbursement or through health and benefit plans yeah. um, in order to do that we need to be on label so we need marketing authorization uk eu and we need regulatory approval in the us and other territories and if we are successful in doing that uh, either ourselves or through licensing partnerships with, with bigger companies and um, that will enable us to have our therapeutics on label and if we are on label then the NHS can engage with what we do, the French public health care system, the German public health care system, and then over in the US, the big uh, insurance funded um, health care systems. Um, and so the psychedelics industry, when you think about it, it's been around for thousands of years um, with the traditional organic psychedelics of psilocybin, which is in, in mushrooms. Um, and then also there was, a, there was a very strong amount of research conducted in, in more traditional industry in the 50s and 60s and um, particularly around LSD. Um, interestingly, and very relevantly, the 13th step in the AA, as it was originally designed, was an LSD trip. Um, and then, unfortunately, there was a strong pushback on um, drugs in the 60s, led by Nixon and the DEA, and all of that research stopped. And so there was a huge wow. amount of research before that, particularly in NDMA, um, and particularly in LSD. And really, there was there was significant breakthroughs made in how these drugs can be used in conjunction with therapy to significantly improve outcomes for individuals and therefore their families and their communities who are suffering with addiction, but also with other mental health conditions. And then, unfortunately, research just stopped with the work that the DEA did um, and the influence that, they, that the U.S. had at a U.N. level. And uh, all the UN charters on drug control were, were, were introduced. And I probably don't want to get too evangelical about it, but, you know, <laughs> no. a certain Professor David Nutt did. I did a lot of research for Tony Blair when he was appointed as a drug czar um, for Tony Blair um, about what the UK should do when Tony Blair came to government with uh, with drug regulation. Um, and he did what all good researchers do. And he identified the drugs that cause most harm to society. And by far and away, the drug that caused most harm to society was alcohol, followed by tobacco, um, and then weight. Is sugar in there as well? <laughs> and no, no, because that that's a food. Oh, quite a big food. Yeah, yeah. But um, it's just, what is, what does one person consider something yeah. that's just ingrained into society that's normal, and what does someone yeah. else consider that's deeply harmful? And it was really 
you know, that was that's quite quite a disappointing incident that happened in the 60s where all that research was stopped. Very much. Because we as a company, we use these drugs to make therapy more effective. Mm. We know in the context of treating addiction, the therapy by itself isn't isn't particularly effective. The AA, as admirable as the AA is, mm. it has a 90% relapse rate. Wow. You don't hear that very often, do you? No, you don't hear that at all. Can you imagine if you were trying to treat cancer and you had a 90% failure rate, right? And you had something else that has the potential to have an 86% success rate. Yeah. I know where I'm shopping. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, But some regulators somewhere said that, you know, this isn't what is allowed. Um, So, yeah, we we, we really think that, you know, by using psychedelic drugs in conjunction with psychotherapy, we have a significant potential to improve outcomes for individuals, their families and their communities whose lives are being destroyed by addiction. And what we want to do is we want to make them available at scale. So that's why we have the research part of the business, the biotech side of the business, and then we have a healthcare and a delivery part of the business. Biotech research is to run R&D programs through the traditional regulatory stage gates to secure on-label approval, marketing authorization, regulatory approval, deliver these at scale with the support of the public healthcare system and with the insurance companies. And then we have a healthcare business where we are understanding the delivery model, both ourselves and through out-licensing businesses to enable us to understand the delivery model, the operating model, generate data to support interactions with regulators and just to build the ecosystem Mm. to get the addiction treatment industry up to speed Mm. with these compounds prior to marketing authorization. And the one thing I should probably go down a rabbit hole, but, but we're working with ketamine. Yeah. Ketamine is already an approved medicine. Uh, so it's approved as a painkiller and as an anesthetic. And we are working with that in an off-label fashion. We're conducting research with ketamine to get it on label. And we're conducting, we're able to del- commercialize that in an off-label fashion mm-hmm. in advance of marketing authorization to enable us to establish the ecosystem uh, to retool the addiction treatment industry before delivering it at scale in a non-label fashion. Quite foundational, isn't it? You're really building the building the bricks again from the 60s. Yeah, yeah hopefully. <laughs> it's like, yeah. So just rewinding as well, and we'll get into Professor David Knott, your team, uh, Dr. Ben Sessa as well, uh, hugely impressive people as well. And just rewinding the clock for you as well, Anthony, because this, this is not a traditional industry for you as well. How did you get into this market? You know, you've, you've been working with uh, with Aon, with Bank of America, Bank of Ireland, I just, really, huge, impressive CV. How did you get involved with co-founding a, a biotech and uh, and clinics? Yeah, so um, my career, I uh, did a degree and a master's in technology. Um, I always wanted to know, or I wanted to know how money worked coming out of university. So I got a job in banking. So I worked with Merrill Lynch for a couple of years on the capital market side. Uh, worked with Bank of Ireland on the capital market side after that for a while. Mm. Um, and then I left banking during the financial crisis and I went to work for Aon, world's largest insurance, reinsurance broker. And actually what most people don't, don't know is actually one of the largest placers of capital into the capital markets with, mm. through the pension funds they administer. Oh, okay. And so large company, did an MBA, ended up in the fast track with them as a ultimately chief operating officer for the risk consulting business um, and then did some other stuff as well. Um, but my job was in London and my family were in Dublin. So I was in London three days a week for probably the best part of eight years. And it just really wasn't very good for me. It wasn't good for my mental health. Um, and I was, was very, very, very good to me. I made my career there. But yeah. just that, that working habit of being in London for every week and my family and kids being at yeah. home, 
I just I, I just didn't want to do that anymore. So I, I left Aon and I set up a small, went out my own, did a bit of consulting myself, yes. um, a couple of small consulting gigs, a sort of contract CEO, contract contract um, managing director. Um, and one of those was in a consumer packaged goods space. The other was in a biotech space. And through those uh, gigs, I met some people like-minded to myself who understood the benefits that psychedelics have in making therapy more effective mm. um, and we all collectively had our brushes with mental health or with addiction and we decided to come together um, to set up Awaken Life Sciences and nice. um, one guy was a consumer packaged goods guy, the other guy was a capital markets guy and then there was me sort of professional and financial services mm. um, but we all knew the benefits that psychedelics have um, and we also all have our, our reasons for, for wanting to bring those to bear. So we set up Awaken in 2020, Q1 2020, and we brought in Dr. Ben Sessa as a co-founder, who is Dr. Ben Sessa, for people in the audience, um, is a leading authority in this industry. He's actually the person who coined the phrase, the the the, the psychedelic renaissance, uh, published many books. So we brought Ben in as, as a fourth co-founder, and uh, we built the company from there with the, the sole purpose of uh, solving the addiction crisis. Wonderful. It was the first clinic, the Bristol Clinic, that... Dr. Sasser is, yeah. is so, so we um we again we, we have the, the, the dual focus of the business, which is R and D and commercialization. Mm -hmm. And on the R and D side, uh through through Ben, we brought in Professor David Nutt, who was a close friend of Ben's. Um, and through both of those our connections, we managed to acquire the IP. We sort of turbocharged the R and D side of the business. We acquired a lot of R and D assets from Professor David Nutt's consultancy company, particularly around faster acting versions of MDMA. Mm -hmm. um, we acquired the IP from a clinical trial, phase 2A clinical trial for MDMA to treat alcohol use disorder. And we acquired the asset that was from Imperial College. And then we acquired the assets from the University of Exeter for a phase 2B trial for ketamine assisted therapy to treat alcohol use disorder. Um, and we built the company from there. And then we also opened up a, the, your UK's first psychedelic assisted psychotherapy clinic in bristol and after that we opened up a clinic in london we acquired a clinic up in um up in oslo in norway and i think just maybe for your audience like the reason why we're focused on ketamine and we're focused on on mgma um is they're particularly useful in the context of making therapy more effective in treating addiction so if we take if we take mgma as an example um we know that trauma is a causal factor in addiction, in substance addictions. It's also a significant causal factor in anxiety, depression, PTSD, and eating disorders. And one of the most advanced companies in the psychedelic sector is actually completing their phase three trials for MDMA-assisted therapy to treat PTSD in the US. And we imagine, or we hope and plan, that MDMA will actually be on label, will be approved and will be on label in the US to treat PTSD in early 2024. And the question is, why, does MD, why is MDMA that is so good at treating, enabling therapy to be more effective in the context of treating trauma, mental health issues that have trauma as a causal factor? It's because MDMA does, does three things. It, uh, it switches off the fighter. First of all, it releases oxytocin. And oxytocin is the chemical that is released by a breastfeeding mother uh, to form a bond between her and her child. 
Um, and so the, the the single biggest contributing factor to the success of talk-based therapy is the relationship between the therapist and the client. If you can accelerate that relationship, you significantly improve the probability of success of the therapy program. Second thing that MDMA does is it switches off the fight or flight mechanism at the brain. And so because trauma is a causal factor for us for addiction, um, if you want someone to relive some traumatic events, um, so the, the process of becoming addiction can be a traumatic, being addicted can be, be a traumatic event, um, but also it's significantly it's going to be trauma inflicted upon you as a child, as an adolescent. So if you want to relive those experiences to get in and to deal with them, then that body's natural reaction is to just clam up. Let's get out of here. Yeah. Walk, walk out the door. Yeah. So you, yeah. Dampen, you, you dampen that response back down and then it boosts the empathy mechanism. Yeah. And so it can give people a different perspective on their lives, on themselves, and to forgive things, give forgive people. And so that's why we MDMA is particularly helpful in the context in conjunction with therapy to treat um addiction. And to to give you an example, and I know I'm going down the weeds here a bit, no, but no, to, give no. you an example, to bring this to life, there was someone on the on our phase two A trial, and this guy has spoken about this on television. So this is this is public info. But when he was 10 years old, um he was asleep upstairs in his bedroom. Um, his father was working the night shift and his mother was working the late shift. Uh, her mother, his mother got a lift home with a colleague. Colleague came into the house and unfortunately proceeded to uh, rape and murder this child's mother downstairs in the kitchen. Uh, the murderer came upstairs, went into his bedroom and stood over him for a number of seconds or minutes. And time loses sense in those sort of crisis situations with the knife in his hand. And then he pretended to be asleep and the guy ran away. Um, Guy goes on with life. It was in the 50s or 60s, I think. So not much was spoken about it ever again. And um, went on with life, married, kids, job, became a chronic alcoholic, lost everything, tried multiple treat programs. Yeah. Nothing was successful. He came onto our, onto our MDMA phase 2A program. And during one of the sessions, he had a eye mask on, listened to music, but his mother appeared to him. Um, now, there isn't a trip with MDMA, but there was still a vision. And his mother appeared to him, sat, sat beside him on his bed, back in the bedroom. Um, as And he was a 10-year-old boy again. His mom said, why do you hate yourself? You couldn't have done anything. You were 10 years old. So I forgive you. And he goes, oh, my he, he forgave himself. And then the murderer appeared to both of them. And they challenged the murderer together and said, like, why the fuck did you do what you did? You were arrested three weeks later and you spent the next 30 years in jail. But they forgave him. Um, guy's sober five years later. Now, if you can imagine how long it would take you in talk-based therapy to get to that level of insight, forgiveness, to forgive yourself, to be forgiven by your mother, but, but to forgive the murderer, um, you're talking quite an extended period of time. That insight was achieved in two weeks. Sorry, I beg your pardon, two, two, two months, I beg your pardon. Um, so if you can think of the the radical... The, 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 Acceleration. Acceleration. <laughs> But just the, the cost reduction yeah. for, oh. for the for the NHS, yeah. for individuals, families and communities, this has the ability to radically change outcomes. Yeah. Um, and then when we look at ketamine, mm. ketamine also does three things. Uh, ketamine, there's a strong disassociative effect with ketamine. Um, so that's TRIP. Um, in a recreational setting, the TRIP is typically anybody experience looking down on yourself in the here and now. But what we do is we use ketamine and MDMA in conjunction with therapy. So the treatment program, you have a prep session with a qualified psychiatrist, psychologist, um, and the issues are brought to the surface. 
So then during your disassociative effect or your, your trip, instead of looking at yourself in the here and now, you're looking at yourself in the totality of your life and those crisis points or those traumatic events that led you perhaps to become addicted, you get a different perspective on. And again, different perspective gives you the ability to see things differently and potentially forgive yourself or to forgive other people. Incredible. And there's also ketamine gets the brain back into a state of neurogenesis. So it's that state where the brain, where neural, neural connections are forming, yeah. uh, quite like when you are back at, at a teenager. Yeah. And you know, those memories from being a teenager are much more impactful. So yeah. we have the integration session where you integrate those insights and learnings from your disassociative effect during the state of neurogenesis. Those insights and coping mechanisms about the temptations and the, the pressure points, they're laid down at a much deeper level. And so therefore they become much more ingrained in your psyche and your ego. Um, and then the third thing that ketamine does is it disrupts memories. And this is a known fact that memories are dynamic. They're recalled from the database. And as they're recalled, they're, inter they're interfered with. But ketamine particularly has a way to disrupt memories and therefore make them less impactful in your life. And we know that memories are a trigger event for relapse. The sight of a pint or the sight of a pub, the smell of a pint triggers the memory of a predicted reward the sight of a gambling machine, the sight of you porn or pornography produces a memory of a predictive future reward. Now, if you can disrupt those triggering memories, they become less impactful and less, less, less likely to trigger events. And so that's why we particularly like ketamine and MDMA, because they make therapy much more effective in the context of treating treating addiction. And that's really what we're working as as a company is we're, we're, taking, we're repurposing those compounds to be used in conjunction with therapy to treat substance addictions, but also really importantly, to also potentially treat behavioral addictions. Because again, we're targeting through the brain circuits that house the behaviors that drive the addiction. So rather than developing drugs to block a receptor site, to block the active ingredient interacting, like say naltraxone blocks the opioid receptor, that will never work for behavioral addictions. Behavioral addictions affect about a billion people globally, and there's no current standard of care. So not only are we sort of pushing the pushing pushing the envelope on developing and commercializing therapeutics to much more effectively treat alcohol addiction, 86% abstinence versus 25% abstinence. We're actually the first company in the world to be developing drug-based therapies uh, to treat behavioral addictions. I could listen to you all day. I can't <laughs> imagine you. anybody not getting behind this, really. You know, it's such a big problem, isn't it? Like you're saying earlier, 20% of the world, you know, with... with, with his... How well, far do... unfortunately, there's like there's not many, you know, you go to a family dinner or you go out with your friends and yeah. you're, you're not very far removed from mm -hmm. someone whose life has been radically uh, disrupted yeah. Yeah. by alcohol or by gambling. Yeah. And how far do you guys, as a as a leadership team in a business, how far do you look ahead? You know, are you thinking in a hundred years we're going to look back, and if everything, you know, with a downhill, uh, uh, with a wind behind us, and downhill, uh, how far can we go? You know, will it be widely available? Will it be almost kind of walk-in therapy where any everybody can access? Is that the big, big, big hairy audacious goal? <laughs> You know, it's completely that's, accessible. Uh, no, it's, that's the wonderful, the wonderful challenge <laughs> in the leadership yeah. role is you've got to think, you've got to have a, a one foot in today and one foot in tomorrow. Mm -hmm. um, so we have to, there's, there's, there's so much 
that needs to be done and there's so much that could be done yeah. but you've got to you've got to be very selective and you've got to focus and execute today but you got to build the foundations for tomorrow yeah. and that's really what what you know it's always hard to stop yourself going after the next big shiny thing and forgetting yeah. to execute yeah. and get shit done today yeah. so that's that's what we look at so the way that i i, I view the potential for the, this subset of the cns which is a subset of the biotech industry which is a subset of the life sciences industry is it's certainly not a panacea to cure all ills right there are people for whom this doesn't work mm. um there are people for whom the current treatments do work you know there's there's a guy on on my my board uh for former global chief commercial officer officer from gilead and he has friends who've said no just hey hey because they have the strength of will to persist with AA. But there's a lot of people that it doesn't work for. So um for, for us, when I when I look at the the the, the future, um there's sort of there's there's four evolutions in the psychedelics industry. Evolution one is where we are currently today or in the next couple of years. And it is the traditional psychedelics running through marketing authorization and being delivered through in the public health in private clinics in public health care and reimbursed through insurance and that's ketamine today because it's already on label but it's been delivered off label and then it'll be on label and then it's also mdma and potentially psilocybin and that's wave one and wave one is probably going to be the next 10 years mm. then after that there is going to be sorry next 10 years and then you're going to have somewhere in the mix there technology is going to be delivered or in, in, in introduced to increase the scale because probably one of the things we're going to get to in a while is is the rate limiting factor for this industry is the fact that you need a lot it's high touch and uh, it's currently high touch with humans um, and there's a shortage of humans who have experience in delivering the therapy side of this uh this these treatments so wave one is is the traditional psychedelics wave two is that is sort of efficiency and scale uh, enabled by technology wave three and that's 10 years a 10-year horizon wave wave three is next generation psychedelics so some of what we're working on is we've got a new nce new chemical entity development program where we're looking to develop an intactogen so mdma is an intactogen so we're looking to develop the next generation of that that will hopefully work in two hours because delivery time in clinic as with all healthcare businesses is critical so if you can shorten you're you're, you're there and there's other people working to there's there's a psychedelic compound called 5-MeO that's very short acting so there's people working to extend that yeah. people like us are working to shorten MDMA other companies are working to shorten psilocybin to get to get to about a two hour in in treatment experience yeah. so that's wave three and then wave four will be compounds specifically designed for, for specific indications yeah. or for specific individuals and that's the way it's going to go but ultimately speaking this is going to be one of the ways one of the mainstream ways that addiction and mental health is treated and the reason for that is the current treatments for addiction and mental health lack innovation and unfortunately lack efficacy there are no treatments available currently for behavioral addictions there are treatments available for alcohol use disorder, but they are not as effective for all people as they could be. So we're looking to solve that and we're looking to provide hope for individuals, families and communities who are being destroyed by, by addiction. And then likewise, 
for other mental health conditions like PTSD, the treatments are there are treatments, but they are expensive. They take a long time and they're not always effective. So MDMA shows a very, very good potential for, for, for curing. And I recently curing PTSD, um, not with us, with other companies, but also then um, psilocybin has shown great promise for treating treatment resist, treatment resistant depression. Um, so for some people, current treatments for depression will work, but for those people for whom it doesn't work, psilocybin is showing great promise. So um, I think this is going to be, you know, in the next 10, 15 years, this is going to be a core pillar in treatment for addiction and treatment for mental health. And these therapeutics will be tools in the toolbox for practitioners to provide hope for people for whom the traditional treatments aren't working. And then there'll just be, continue to be evolutions beyond that as the drugs are updated to be more in line with the current treatment, tre the current infrastructure, which is shorter treatment windows. And then they'll be updated to become more specific to indications. And then they'll be become up more updated to be specific to treatment time, indication, and then individual. And that is just where the innovation will, will, will come. Wow, fantastic. And maybe that's a nice point to segue into uh the, the area that, that i'm most involved with is is people and, and as we spoke about this is very high touch people industry and uh, one quick question is how well are all the uh biotechs uh or, or competitors of yours how well do you all work together as an industry i mean is everybody pulling in the same direction uh, just yeah, yeah, I, I yeah. think so. You've, you've got the usual strategic tensions, right? Yeah, um, comp competitive pressures. But yeah. I, I think you know, there's there's definitely a a strong cohort of people in the industry who firmly believe, like we do, that it's significantly easier to grow the pie yeah. than it is just to argue over a slice of the pie. Yeah. And for example, right. we had, I, yeah. yeah, I was I was uh, thank you. I was over in London last Thursday. Um, speaking at a conference and three of my other fellow uh, psychedelic CEOs were there. Two of them were on the stage with me and one was in the audience. I saw, a, great yeah. <laughs> we a great photograph afterwards of all of us. And it was like, you know, just, just, you know, sharing a sparkling water or, or beer, whatever yeah. was uh, tipple. Yeah. And, right. But obviously all, all facing the same challenges, Yeah. but all looking forward to the same opportunities and then working out how we can support each other, both yeah. by just chatting because yeah. you don't get to chat that much yeah. or actually by, by helping solve, helping work together to solve some, some big problems. So I think yeah, yeah. we're by its nature, this industry has attracted people who are interested in doing good. And so therefore we are predisposed mm -hmm. to working together to solve problems together. And definitely in a nascent industry like ours, we are more interested in working together to solve these problems together rather than, right, so, than, than uh, so we're moving on to uh, my favorite piece of the jigsaw puzzle and say which is uh, my theory on most business problems uh, are solved by people obviously there's some technology influence and, and so on but what are your thoughts on that how do you think that's going to impact your world your business the industry as a whole and how are you going about tackling uh, some of those challenges yeah, sure. Happy to. So, you, so you're absolutely right. Um, certainly, our our company and most companies that I that I've experienced are there at their core. They're they're people people businesses, um, and there aren't many challenges that that people can't solve when working together. So, I think you know our talent agenda is it's a mix of bringing a mix of generalists and specialists together 
to solve issues. And the great thing about our company is, is we're a mission-driven company and everyone in the company shares our mission, which is to solve addiction and, and also mental health issues. So we're really lucky. We've got a really good mix of generalists. So certainly I'm a generalist, but also specialists in, you know, in our in our biotech side and in our in our healthcare side. And that mix of generalists and specialists together gives us the ability to look at problems and solve them in a creative manner. We, you know, we have conversations, we have respectful conversations, but we work together to look at problems from a different angle and come together to solve them. So that mix of, of specialists and generalists who are all pointed in the same direction and we're all mission driven, that, that's really critical for us. And that's certainly our, our talent agenda on top of all the usual stuff about retention, uh, attraction, retention and development of talent. And we spoke briefly earlier on as well about academies and internal uh, learning and development functions as well, creating a standardised approach uh, as well. Do you think that's something that you might employ over the um, over the years? Or do, you, do you think it can work? Yeah. So I think one of the one of the the or the main, I believe, talent challenges that's going to face the psychedelics industry and currently is and is going to face the psychedelics industry yeah. is the availability of suitably qualified and experienced mm -hmm. therapists and um, in our business in the healthcare side of our business it's the therapist the therapists are the magic sauce in the business um on the healthcare side mm -hmm. they are where they're where the rubber hits the road in this industry it's where they are treating and delivering therapy mm -hmm. now you have a challenge with that because the experience of the client and therefore the potential outcomes for the client are disproportionately impacted by the quality of the experience they have in clinic. You know, with a with a standard healthcare model, it can be, you know, you go into your GP, it's 15 minutes and a prescription. Whereas for this industry, it's, you know, you're sitting with someone for a couple of hours uh, over multiple sessions over, over multiple weeks. And the, the therapist has the ability to disproportionately impact the quality of the outcome. So having a suitable number, when you think of the scale of the problem where the, the, this industry is looking to solve, that's quite a, quite a large volume of therapists and clinics. So having a suitable number of those available, that's the main talent agenda or the talent challenge for the industry. Now we're going about it by solving it for solving it in a particular way by by really looking to standardize what we do, and that standardization gives us the ability to efficiently train people, and efficiently you know identify and broaden the talent pool because we can train people pretty efficiently to deliver a, a standardized uh, treatment approach. Great um, great help for us is that standardized approach is something that should translate through to acceptance by regulators and by payers in the insurance business. But that's the that's the biggest talent challenge that faces this industry, I believe. It's yeah. not at the top level. It's actually at the therapist level where therapists have a disproportionate impact on the quality of the outcome. We're solving it one way. Other companies are choosing to solve it a different way. Yeah. Do you think, peeling back the onion, do you think there's enough people coming through at the kind of education level to solve the problem in 10 years, for example? No. No. So, uh, there, there, there is a, too much the, the university there, level well there's there's a chronic shortage of healthcare workers mm. in most developed economies yes. um there are not that many therapists mental health therapists or addiction specialist therapists out there let alone there being that many 
psychedelic mental health or addiction therapists. So there is there is a global healthcare talent shortage uh, exacerbated uh, coming out of COVID when many healthcare professionals left the industry on the back of burnout. So there's there is unfortunately a war for talent in the healthcare industry. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then you know there's there's on top of that it's it's there's an even shortage greater shortage of of therapists and then you've got the added specialism of psychedelics so now i think there's that that is a that is a challenge that the industry faces two ways forward standardization to enable consistency and efficiency of training or use technology as an enabler and i think both of those are 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 things that need to be born brought to bear i think yes universities need to add this psychedelics in as a core component of master's degree, undergraduate and graduate programs. Um, I think companies like us need to work out how we can standardize and efficiently train people, but also then technology needs to be brought to bear to act as an enabler, both from training at scale, but perhaps in some way replacing or augmenting and enabling the therapist to just deliver, deliver more at scale. Absolutely. And I was listening to, uh, I think it was just highlights of Rishi Sunak talking about um, overseas workers as well and some of the challenges that they had. And I don't want to get too political because I, I don't have the, yeah. enough Ooh, depth of knowledge like on we're it. getting into my, into my favorite topic, Brexit. Yeah, I was, I was listening to one of the MPs who was sort of you know speaking at, at PMQs about the psychedelic industry. That was really great to hear the other day. And I was listening to Rishi talking about migration. And, and then I was listening to another politician who was talking about we need to harvest more of what we've already got. And I was thinking, we haven't got it, mate. You know, we haven't got it. So you know, like the dentistry, for example, yeah, mega problems because dentists have just gone back to the EU. No, thanks very much. I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, well, look, we're, we're in the EU in Ireland and there's a shortage of, of healthcare. Course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. yeah, yeah. So I actually don't think as much as I get, you know, poke it, it, it <laughs> it's a developed economy talent shortage as populations age yeah um and there's a shortage in nursing there's a shortage in in healthcare practitioners um and you know certainly in ireland we don't make the healthcare industry a particularly attractive industry to come and work in you know what you're a doctor and you're expected to work whatever crazy hours it is here where you can go to australia and have a normal job normal lifestyle so it's um, I think the healthcare industry has a talent attraction, uh, retention, and certainly probably development challenge as well, right? Um, and those need to be solved. Um, and certainly then in the psychedelics industry, we need to solve for develop talent development, talent retention, um, and talent tra- attraction at the at the therapist level. That's really where we need lots of art, but lots of people. And um, the doctors not not a bottleneck on there because you can have one one psychiatrist operating across multiple multiple clinics mm. because the doc the doctors are doing the initial medical assessment and the prescribing etc but actually it's the therapist that there's a, there's going to be a significant bottleneck around and so just like there's a talent supply shortage in many sectors there is a talent and will continue to be a talent supply shortage in the therapist side of the psychedelic assisted therapy industry and I think the way you've got to do it is you've got to, you've got to standardize things, but also then you've got to use technology uh, as an enabler. Absolutely. That's really great points, Anthony. And we could uh, probably talk for hours on that one, on that one particular topic. There. <laughs> That's really exciting. And 
Yeah, it's been really great. Very insightful. And um, it, it's it's very winning. You know, when I, when you're talking earlier on, I was just thinking, why, you know, how would somebody not get behind this as well? Um, and, and just maybe diverting slightly on that one as well. Is investment still uh, positive across the industry of psychedelic assisted therapy? No. Why, why not, do you think? Uh, um, you've got to risk off uh, environments. Risk risk is off because of uh, geopolitics and macroeconomics. Um, the biotech sector had a very strong bull run um, coming out of the financial crisis right up until Q1 2021 and then started to flatline and dropped off a cliff um, towards the end of Q... Sorry, towards the end of 2021. And we're risk off because macroeconomics are macroeconomics driven by by inflation. Uh, inflation drives interest rates up. When interest rates go up, investment comes out of the, out of uh, the equities and goes into interest bearing um, investments. Um, and then you've got uh, geopolitics with everything that we know that's going on in Eastern Europe. Yeah. And those two things take a chunk of money out of the capital markets. You also had people going back to work after COVID, so all the day traders came out. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of that looked just take take capital out of the capital markets and move us into risk off when your risk biotech is a risky sector so when you have risk off the funds are all closed to new stories and it just starts to starts to pair back from there so we're in we're in a tough cycle in the biotech sector and the capital markets um potentially i believe it's the worst cycle that has ever ever occurred in the biotech sector so that is then feeding through to the cns space as feeding through to psychedelics. So in the public markets, we're publicly traded. Public markets are, are a challenge, um, but it's cyclical. The capital markets are cyclical. We're in a down cycle right now and risk off. As soon as risk comes back on, cycle will come back. And there is a huge amount of capital to be brought to bear to the biotech industry. The funds are not mandated to sit on capital. The capital may be redeemed, but ultimately the capital that is sitting in the funds will need to be deployed as soon as we move back into a risk-on environment. And in that situation, people, funds and investors should look around and they should currently look around at assets that are currently undervalued. And there are some companies in the psychedelic space that are undervalued, given the potential that this industry has to effectively solve some very large problems that have suffered from a significant lack of innovation over the last number of decades. Mm. But in summary, it's it's a challenging time for the site for the biotech industry as a whole. There are an awful lot of companies currently trading uh, below cash on hand. So their market cap is less than the cash they actually have in the bank. Now you know that is a dislocated market when that when that is happening. But it is just cyclical. And when it changes, when the market comes around, and um, the biotech industry should uh, pick back up. Wow, it's really exciting. I'll make sure I share all of the links to how people can connect with you, Awaken Life Sciences, Awaken Clinics, and uh, yeah, I'll make sure it's published in, uh, you know, widely in as many places. And one thing we didn't touch on, actually, was uh, Dr. Ben Sessa's feature on yeah. Netflix as well. Maybe that's yeah. the best place to end. Yeah, that's a really great, great kudos, uh, testament to his position in the industry as well and the importance of having those guys on board is- absolutely now we're particularly lucky with uh, some of the team members that we have across yeah. the board we've got the former global chief commercial officer from gilead paul carter with the former ceo of the priory on our board uh, steve page yeah. and then on the management team and um, we're lucky enough to have professor david nutt uh, head of department in imperial uh, he's our chief research officer got professor celia morgan head of exeter 
both global authorities in the use of psychedelics to treat addiction. We've got Dr. Ben Sessa, who's a good global authority in the use of MDMA to treat addiction, and uh, and um, Dr. Laurie Higbed. So we've got some really good team members. Um, and yeah, Ben Ben featured um, on the Netflix documentary or the Netflix docu series, uh, How to Change Your Mind, uh, by Michael Pollan. Um, and uh, yeah, no, it was really, really good. I believe we're the only private company uh, or the only per- uh, commercial company uh, to have actually been featured in the series. And it was just great to have Ben and our clinic in Bristol. I think it was it's still under construction. Um, but um, yeah, no, it was great, great to have Ben featured. Yeah, amazing. What a great asset as well. Something to share as well for life. Well, ever Netflix is around anyways. Yeah. <laughs> How did that come around anyway? Is that just something through his network or is it, uh, was it Awaken feature? Oh, ben- we want to... Ben, ben is pretty well known in the industry, so a lot of media. And Ben is Ben is Ben is incredibly knowledgeable. Uh, he is a global expert and a global authority, and so we are lucky that when various media media outlets want to learn about psychedelics and and, and have someone speak about psychedelics, we have got a you know three of the world authorities working for us in Dr. Ben Sessa, Professor Celia Morgan and Professor David Nutt, and so they received quite a lot of inbound inquiries, so that was just, that was Ben being um, a world expert. Netflix uh, Netflix wanted to speak to him. What a guy. And we've had Medica recently, last week, and CPHI, the sort of pharma big conferences. Does the psychedelic industry have a similar uh, schedule? Uh, is it as uh, you know, productive yep. and uh, efficient? As... Yeah, yeah, there is... Um... There are three main conferences in the psychedelics industry. Um, two of them are academic in their origins, but now also becoming uh, business focused. Um, and one of them is primarily business focused. So there is the academic origins one that now is becoming business focused is her in New York is Horizons. Mm-hmm. And then in Europe, it's ICPR in the Netherlands. And then the purely commercial one is a company is an operation called Wonderland, which is typically in Miami. And those three conferences together took cover off the deep, deep academic experience and expertise in this industry and how that is now moving towards uh, commercialization and embracing industry. And that's uh, Horizons and ICPR. And then there's the Wonderland conference in Miami, which is focused very much focused on the on the uh, the commercial and the industry bringing bringing this to bear into into the industry certainly for the u.s market were you in miami or was it one of the team i'm trying to remember who, who was I, I was there last year and ben and david spoke last year and then this year we right. had dr loanne stewart uh who runs our nordic business uh he was there and he was speaking on stage he's a pretty heavy hitter in the area of the uses of ketamine to treat um, mental health and addiction issues wonderful wonderful I'm really excited to see what's next. I'm sure the audience will be as well. Uh, eternally grateful for your time and insight. And so, you know, it's very, uh, you know, very privileged to be able to have the have your audience and uh, have a really great conversation. Thanks so much. Amazing work. And uh, yeah, I'll make sure I share as far and wide as I possibly can. Listen, Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Great to speak to your audience today as well. And uh, let's stay in touch. Absolutely. Speak soon. Take Cheers. care. Thank you.